back in college, I used to date this girl named Jenna. Jenna was beautiful, captivating, and smart. All the things that a naive young man like myself would fall for in a heartbeat. She was fun to spend time with, and she and I got along really well for the most part. The only part that became a bit of a problem between us was that Jenna was a bit possessive. She had a bit of a possessive attitude when it came to me. She didn't like me spending time with my friends, and if there was another woman there, she would get really passively angry. The only thing that made our relationship a little more complicated was that, at the time, I was 21, and Jenna was about to be 40. Yes, there was almost a 19-year difference between us, which may sound really strange to some people, but to me it didn't matter. There were people in my family that weren't fond of the idea, but I live for me, not for them, so I did what I wanted to do. Unfortunately, that age gap also came with differences in how we wanted to live our lives. I wanted to socialize. I wanted to party. I wanted to go out and live life to the fullest. This was an issue with how possessive she was, obviously, and she had this mentality that living life was just spending time together alone. I have no issue with that, and I was happy to just spend the night with her, but there were times where I wanted to go out and do other things, and she wouldn't want to. My point is that, no matter how much we cared about each other, we were definitely two different people, who wanted different things. And it was a major rift between us. After about nine or ten months of being together, we sat down and talked about things, and we both kind of agreed that while we cared about each other, it was for the best that we went our separate directions. It was a rather amicable breakup. She understood, I understood, and we agreed that we could still be friends and get together for non-dating dates, if that makes sense. Because the breakup was mutual, I didn't really feel the need to sulk about it. Jenna was a great lady, and I enjoyed our time together, but if we both decided it was best to move on, then why should I get depressed about it being over? I thought that she felt the same way until about two weeks later, when I got a text message from her that said, Really missing you right now. It was a bit heartbreaking to get that text, so I figured that I would call her and we could talk it through. When I did, I could tell that she had been crying, and I told her that I missed her too, that I'd been thinking about giving her a call anyways to see how she was doing. We just chatted about nothing in particular, which seemed to cheer her up, and as the conversation came to an end, she said something like, I'm sorry to have bothered you like that. I just missed you a lot. I made a comment like, Well, I haven't gone anywhere. I'm always around if you need me. She turned that around on me and said, If I needed you tomorrow night to get dinner, would you be around? I chuckled and responded with, Okay, anytime you need me that is not tomorrow night. I have class tomorrow. When I said this to her, her tone changed a bit. 
she changed from this sweet voice to one that was a bit more aggressive. She asked me since when did I have class on Wednesday nights, and I told her that the quarter had changed, so my class schedule shifted literally the week prior. I could tell that she didn't believe me and that she was getting upset. I told her that I could get together on Thursday, and she just kind of brushed it off and said that she would see if she was available, and wrapped the call up. I was a bit upset with how she'd reacted, but I figured that it was just the side effect of us breaking up. That next night, as I said, I had class. When it had let out, I was walking to my car, and to my surprise, Jenna was standing there leaning against my car. Unfortunately, at the time, I was walking with a few guys that I was friends with, and one of them was a bit of a jokey a-hole. He made a comment that was very audible to both myself and Jenna, saying, Yo, man, your mom's hot. Jenna stood up as we approached, and, much to my surprise, she pulled her arm back and slapped him across the face, saying, I'm not his mom, you little punk. He just stood there staring at her, and then at me with his jaw hanging wide open. After a few seconds of silence, the others just sort of awkwardly walked away from me without saying much else. I asked her what the hell that was, and she said something about how what he'd said was disrespectful to both of us, and that she didn't want me hanging around with him anymore. At this point, I kind of lost it. I asked her what she was doing on campus, and why she thought that she could control me like that. She said that she was there to make sure that I was actually in class, and that she didn't want to control me, but that she didn't want me being influenced by people like that. I laughed at her, and then made a comment that she was acting like she was my mom, and that I didn't need her to raise or protect me, as my own parents did a good enough job for the first 18 years of my life. I could see that she was fuming when I said this, but I just said, hmm, good night, Jenna, and got in my car and drove off. I thought that I had made my point. I thought that she was going to leave me alone after that, and yes, what I said was rude, but her slapping my friend was way over the line. Jenna, on the other hand, did not take my disrespect lightly. And this is where things went from an annoyance to something that I could have never expected. I was driving home, not even really thinking about the whole thing that happened with Jenna. Honestly, I was more focused on the project that I needed to do for class than anything. Unfortunately, that was enough of a distraction that I didn't even realize that Jenna was in her car following right behind me. I was about to pull into my apartment complex, and I just happened to glance up at my rearview mirror, only to see Jenna staring at me, with her hands gripping the steering wheel so tight that her knuckles were white. I kind of panicked a bit, thinking that this was not going to end well, and if I had known how unwell it was going to end, I would have driven to a police station or something, not home. I parked my car and quickly got out, expecting to have an argument with this woman that I thought was a great person until recently. 
I grabbed my bag and just stood there on the sidewalk, watching as she backed into an empty spot in front of me. I raised my arms like, what do you want from me? Basically just feeling defeated at this point. After several moments of me just standing there in the glow of her headlights and her not getting out, I waved her off in a dismissive way, kind of to say, well, then forget you, and I turned to walk into my apartment building. The second I turned to walk toward the building, I heard the sound of an engine revving up and tires screeching. At first I thought that she was just going to gun it out of the parking lot, but to my surprise, she wasn't turning. She was speeding up, and she was coming right for me. Fortunately for me, the distance between myself and the spot where she was parked it was enough for me to damn near literally throw myself out of the way and avoid getting run over. Unfortunately for her, I lived in the building by the pool, and where I was standing when she floored it was right in front of the cheap metal fence that surrounded said pool area. I'm pretty sure the thought of hitting me with her car clouded her judgment to the point that she didn't have an exit strategy. Because when I jumped out of the way and she kept going, she smashed through the flimsy fence, and her car's front end went right into the pool. I immediately grabbed my phone and called 911, explaining what had just happened and saying that they needed to send someone right away. I was even nice enough to mention that they should send a medic just in case, though I pretty quickly found out that Jenna wasn't hurt. I watched as she opened the door and climbed up out of the pool. She looked like she was seriously lost and confused. I then watched as she took off down the parking lot and started running down the sidewalk. Like I said, no exit strategy. It didn't take long for the cops to show up, and it was pretty clear that what I said had happened was what happened. They caught her, and they got her in cuffs, and they may have even taken her in for a mental evaluation or something, I really don't remember. So, after all that, I really don't know what her plan was beyond just hitting me with her car. If she would have hit me, she probably still would have gone through the fence and into the pool, which sort of leaves this massive piece of evidence pointing to who had committed the crime. I will say that explaining the whole thing to the rental company was a lot of fun, and thankfully they didn't try to take me to court for the damages or anything, since it really wasn't my fault that my ex went crazy and tried to murder me. In spite of all this, in spite of all that happened, I really hope that Jenna got the help that she needed for whatever mental issues she very clearly had. I don't wish any ill will on her, I just hope that I never run into her ever again. Back in the early 2000s, my family and I went on a camping trip to a popular lake. The drive was about four hours, which wasn't terrible, but there were three of us kids. Me being the oldest at 15, my younger brother 10, and my sister 6. 
and of course, both my mom and my dad. Upon arrival, we set up our tents, which consisted of a large family-style tent and a much smaller one. My parents and younger siblings shared the larger one, and they let me have one to myself. Sometimes my little sister would want to sleep in the tent with me, and that was okay. She was a pretty hard sleeper. Once the tents were put up, I was free to do whatever I really wanted as long as we stayed close. My siblings stayed near the tents, playing with their toys in the nearby gravel and sand. I don't know why I remembered this place so well, but I knew how to get to the beach, and I wanted to walk there to swim. I was given permission, so I grabbed a towel and headed towards the water. I sat on the beach for a while, just taking in the warm sun until I finally wanted to jump into the water. There were already several people there, so I wasn't alone, but I was thankfully left alone. I did notice a younger boy that looked close to my age that was swimming, wearing goggles and seemingly diving into the water. I remember watching for a while because I didn't bring goggles or even think to do so, but I thought it would be cool to use them and look at the bottom of the lake. I guess I was staring a bit too much because he noticed and smiled at me. A bit embarrassed, I smiled back and then turned away to make myself look preoccupied, as much as you can standing in a bed of water. The rest of that evening went without incident. I washed off in the nearby showers, and then headed back to my family where they were preparing dinner. The trip went about the same while we were there. We ate together, played some games together, maybe even fished, and then I would head to the beach to swim with the rest of my family following shortly behind. It wasn't unusual, but I did see that same boy just about every time we went swimming. He would either already be there or he would end up showing up shortly after I did. I didn't mind it though, as I did think he was cute and he was paying me attention, so what was the harm? Eventually, he did approach me and handed me a rock that had a cool impression on it, saying that he thought I would like it. Then we started talking about all what he'd seen down there, and he let me use the goggles. It was actually pretty fun and I told myself to get goggles the next time we either went into town, or next time we planned to come out here. I looked forward to going swimming, anticipating that he would be there, so I made an effort to look my best, as much as I could. We were there for four days, three nights, and on the third day, he said that they were going to be leaving the next morning, so that would be the last time he would get to go swimming. I made a comment about how we should do one last dive together to see what we find, and he suggested that we swim further out, towards the safety barrier that was out there. I agreed, thinking it was something different as I rarely went out that far. There was really no reason to. I guess I just never needed or wanted to, but there we went, racing how fast we could swim to it. After we arrived, I think I dived once, and then he took the goggles back and motioned for me to come closer, like he was going to whisper something to me. It seemed silly at the time because there wasn't anyone close enough to hear us, but I obliged. He then suggested that we make out. I had gone through several crushes, but 
I had never dated anyone at this point, so this took me completely by surprise. I could feel my face getting hot, and I really didn't know what to say. I stammered and was finally able to speak, offering to give him our phone number. We just had a landline at the time. He laughed and accepted the number, but then again pushed his first intentions, while putting his hand on my side. I pushed it off of me and told him that I didn't even know him, and at that point was starting to feel uncomfortable and like my time was spoiled. I told him I had to go and started swimming back. He made a remark at me, but I didn't even look back and continued my way out of the water, feeling like I needed a shower more than usual, so I went to the stalls to do so. The bathrooms and showers for men and women are completely separated buildings, with the women's being closer to the front of the beach. Walking in, you see the sinks and bathroom stalls, and in the back, there are four showers. I usually put my clothes and towel on the bench right outside of the stall because I hated putting on wet clothes, which meant that I undressed outside of the stall. I got in, used the cheap soap dispenser they provided, and lathered up. As I showered, I started getting this uneasy feeling that would just not go away. My nerves were already on edge, so... I stopped to look around. I even opened the stall door, peeking out into the room, seeing if someone was around. It was empty. I went back to my shower, dismissing it as paranoia stemming from the odd encounter with the boy. But as I continued, so did the feeling. It was like someone was watching me. Not being able to overcome this feeling, I quickly turned off the water and flung open the door. As I looked around again, I saw a dark shadow towards the entrance, like someone was just standing at it, just about to enter or maybe they were leaving. I was suspicious at this point because I never heard a toilet flush or another shower turn on. I turned to get dressed so that I could just get out of there when my heart plummeted to the floor. My clothes were gone. My towel was on the floor like it was dropped in a rush, but that was it. I looked under the bench and in all the stalls, but they were gone. This confirmed my suspicion, and confirmed that it wasn't just a shadow, that there was someone in there with me. I wrapped my towel around me, and I looked out the door to see if I saw anyone around. Anyone carrying my clothes, but... There were just a few people that were already at the beach when I left. Except for one. I didn't see that boy anywhere. I knew it had to be him. And if it was him, what are the chances I felt like I was being watched because... I was. The showers were just like the toilet stalls, so there were breaks in the wall where anyone could have easily been looking. I also then recall the remark he made as I was leaving. He said something along the lines of, Fine, go take your shower then. I wasn't even out of the water yet, so why would he assume that's where I was going? I felt violated and scared, not knowing what to do. He took everything. My clothes and my bathing suit were just gone. I paced for a while in there trying to figure out what I was going to do. I could wait until someone else came in and told them, or I could make a run for it. The walk wasn't that far, but 
still way further than my 15-year-old self was willing to go in just a towel. So, I waited. I knew my parents would either show up eventually to swim, or because they were worried that I hadn't returned yet. But I also hoped that someone would come in sooner and I could tell them to get my parents. Thankfully, that's what happened. Two older ladies came in and right before they got into the showers, I asked them for help. I told them that someone took my clothes, and they looked appalled. One lady gave me her cover-up dress, which was obviously too big, but not at all see-through, thankfully, and they walked with me back to my family. It became a fiasco when I got back. I had to embarrassingly explain why I didn't have my clothes, and even though I had no proof, I wasn't going to hold back the fact that I had an idea of who could have done it. My dad's face instantly became red. After I got dressed and gave the lady's dress back, my dad wanted to drive around looking for this kid. We went to the beach and to different campgrounds, but we never saw him. I never saw him interacting with anyone at the beach, so I couldn't even identify his family or anyone that he'd come with. We went back to our camp without any luck. I could tell that my dad was still furious. And even though I knew he wasn't mad at me, I still felt bad. I felt like I ruined our trip. We went home the next day as normal, but my mom slept in the tent with me just to be safe. We never saw that kid again, nor did I get my clothes, and I still get this creepy, gross feeling that he's out there somewhere, still holding on to them. I'm Nicole. I'm one of the few black women in my hometown to become a registered nurse. I grew up in St. Martinville by the Bayou Tech in St. Martin Parish, Louisiana. I'm a lot older now, so looking back at certain events still makes hair stand up on my neck and haunts me. I know you're thinking, what the hell is she talking about? Well, just listen. Almost 20 years ago, I recently graduated from LSU with a nursing degree. I moved back home with my parents, and I worked 16 miles south at a rehabilitation and nursing facility in Lafayette. Living in a rural parish, my salary was low to average. I would work 16-hour shifts on the weekend, and one or two days on weekdays. The following year, I found another nursing facility located in Baton Rouge. It was northeast of St. Martinville, basically 61 miles. It did seem pretty far, but this job offered a higher pay salary, sick days, and a sign-on bonus. I had a one-hour and three-minute drive, so I would set my alarm clock two hours early. I drove back and forth to work. My parents were very worried about being responsible on I-10, Monday to Friday, every morning. Within a year, I saved enough to relocate to Baton Rouge. I found a small apartment close to my job, and I started dating a guy named Jackson. My apartment had eight buildings. I lived in Building 8, in the back of the apartment complex. I parked my car in the back parking lot and my landlord and I would socialize about the world and my job. He told me to call him Dan, 
Gilbert short of Danny. Dan was a much older guy at the time, maybe mid-fifties. He was five foot eleven with brown eyes, dark brown hair, which he always wore a cap over, a salt and pepper beard, was stocky and very sweet. Dan's wife died a year prior of cancer. He would say, You remind me of my beautiful angel. And I would smile and say thanks. I could see that Dan was still grieving. Poor guy, I thought. A few times I suggested some sort of therapy, but Dan always said no. A few months ago, I changed my work hours from 6pm to 6am. I liked it. It was a laid-back shift, but recently I would arrive home at around 6.15 to 6.30. I walked to my apartment to put the key in the lock, but my door was unlocked. I entered my apartment not knowing why or who could be there, but to my surprise, there was no one. I went to the manager's office. Dan was at his desk drinking a cup of coffee. I told Dan about my door, and we both went back to my apartment. Dan asked me, well, Are you dating anyone? I replied yes, but then said that he didn't have a key. My parents have the only spare. Then Dan asked, To feel safe, would you like it if I changed your locks? I thought about it. Dan asked if I'd forgotten to lock my door. I blew it off and then just said, No thanks. But my intuition told me that I would never leave my door unlocked. I called Jackson, and I asked Jackson if he had left the door unlocked. And Jackson replied, No, my beautiful angel. And we hung up. I dwelled on that thought, beautiful angel. A few weeks later, I came home to an open door. I rushed to my car and called the police, mentioning a burglary on my AT&T Razor cell phone. I watched the police pull up, two officers got out of the car as I walked toward them, and they checked my apartment. There was nothing stolen, my windows weren't broken, it was just like my door was left open. But by whom? Then the police asked, well, are you dating anyone? I said, yeah, why? And one of the officers gave me a piece of paper with writing. The paper was a letter written to me. The letter said, My dear darling, I know you're wondering why I wrote this letter. I love you, I watch you, and I will protect you. I will never hurt you, my beautiful angel. Love, your secret admirer. I didn't recognize the handwriting, and I didn't know of any secret admirer, I told the police. Dan walked up, I introduced him to the police, and I showed Dan the letter. Dan told the police about the first time, and the police suggested that I get my locks changed. Dan said he would go to the hardware store as soon as he was done with his tenant interviews. Then Dan left. The police asked me a few more questions about Dan, and then gave me a card with an incident number and detective number, and then left. I decided to call in to work, and I called Jackson. I wanted Jackson to come and have dinner and watch a movie with me. Later that night, Jackson came over. I just finished cooking dinner, and I told him that Dan hadn't come back to change my locks. Jackson just continued eating. After eating, the movie ended. We decided to go to a bar for a couple of drinks, 
and we came home at a quarter to eleven. We both then went to bed. At around 3 a.m., Jackson woke me up. He told me to get up, call the police, and then handed me a metal bat. He told me to stay in the apartment, and I asked him where he was going. He said, outside. Now, I was scared. He woke me up without explaining the problem, and he went outside. I then heard a grunt, then a voice hollering. I looked out the window to see Jackson scuffling with a man. I described over the phone to the police, and then hung up and ran outside where I saw the man on top of Jackson hitting him in his face. I came up behind the man, hitting him in the back with a metal bat, knocking him off Jackson. I helped Jackson get up and we went into my apartment. I locked the door, put a chair in front, and then cut the lights out, and we hid in my bedroom until we heard the police sirens. We open the door, and Jackson goes to make a police report. The police search the apartment premise, and they return to inform us that they found the description of the man. It was Dan, the landlord. The police said that Dan had been married six times, and all of his wives had died to suicide. The last marriage, Dan's wife's death, was a mysterious cold case. They found his wife dead in the bathtub. At first it was ruled a suicide, and I asked what happened, and they said she fell and hit her head getting into the tub. Then the autopsy report stated blunt force trauma to her head had killed her. Dan, of course, had an alibi. Of course charges were pressed. I moved in with Jackson for three months, but our relationship didn't really work out so I moved back to St. Martinville. But, to Dan, I hope that we never meet again. It was the summer of 2006. I could never forget it. I was nine years old, and my family and I were heading to the community pool, it was my dad, my mom, and my two older siblings. The pool was always a conflicting time for me. I loved the water, and I loved the water slide, and I even enjoyed swimming. However, I was not good at swimming, and in fact, I had a slight fear of the water, or of drowning. It was so hard to want to run and jump right into the pool, but as soon as it got higher than my knees... I slowed down and stiffened up. I could usually loosen up after being in the water for a period of time, but it was still frustrating for me at my age. I wanted to be able to jump off the diving board and swim laps with my friends, but I just wasn't there yet. But I did do my best to push through it and have a good time. This time was no different. I wanted to have fun with my siblings, and in fact... One of my friends even showed up. I don't know if that was planned or not, but it was a great surprise. We met in the water, and thankfully he knew my issues so he didn't push me, and we slowly made our way deeper into the water. When we got into the deeper end, we stayed close to the side so that I could hold on to it, and we just talked and messed around. We talked about what we were looking forward to the following school year, 
made fun of people that we didn't like and bet who could hold their breath longer. I was actually having a great time until one specific person started jumping off the diving board. The diving area was in the same pool, but it had a very steep drop because of how deep it went. It was also sectioned off, so you couldn't go over there just to casually swim. We were pretty close to the diving side with my friends back to it and me facing it. This guy was constantly jumping in and was obviously trying to do it for attention. I say that it was obvious because he kept yelling as he jumped in and the lifeguards would yell at him to stop. We would turn and give dirty looks because the water would end up hitting us more than a normal person jumping in, and he was just flat out being obnoxious. However, us looking back seemed to be exactly what fed him as he would make faces at us, say stuff in passing, and really just do childish things for a teenager like him to be doing. I suggested to my friend that we should just move somewhere else, but... He was now adamant on staying. He didn't want to be bullied out of the spot that we had been at, so I stayed with him. I wish I would have pushed him harder to move. Every few hours, the lifeguard calls for a break in the pool, and when this happens, the lifeguards switch their posts, and only adults or those 18-plus and infants are allowed to swim. So when they all blew their whistles, we knew that we had to get out. Instead of having to walk all the way back to the shallow side and wait for the people in front of us, we thought it would be smart to go under the barrier into the diving side and use the ladder that was right next to us. I may have had a slight phobia of the water, but the laziness of young kids supersedes fear, I guess. We went under the floating barrier, and I waited behind my friend as he went up the ladder, and the next thing I heard was someone shouting. As I looked up to see who it was, I then started hearing the lifeguard's whistle blowing and him pointing. I followed their hand to where they were pointing, and all I saw was the same diving jerk running towards the pool and jumping in. I don't know what happened, but I assume the guy's jump wasn't as calculated because his jump didn't go far. Time slowed to a crawl as this guy crashed into the water, landing directly on me. I flinched, and before I could do anything else, I was under the water, holding my breath. I didn't really like to go under the water like this, so I started to panic as I noticed everything sound muffled. I was too afraid to open my eyes underwater, so I was flailing and holding my arms out, hoping that someone would pull me out. As I did this, I felt something soft near me and grabbed onto it, hoping that whatever it was would help me. Instead, I was shoved by it in my side, causing me to forcefully exhale. Needing to catch my breath, I then inhaled, but I wasn't at the surface yet. I felt the burning in my throat and tried coughing, but it wasn't working. I continued to wave my arms the best that I could, but my efforts felt fruitless, as my little body felt heavier and heavier. At that point, it didn't even feel like my own body until I was too tired to fight it, and that was the last thing I remembered. I don't know how long it lasted, but the next thing I remembered was someone whispering in my ear to wake up. It reminded me of when my mom would whisper in my ear in the morning to get me out of bed. I felt relaxed, and like I weighed nothing. 
and then it all came rushing back to me. I felt the cold, hard concrete on my back and could hear my dad's worried voice yelling at me. Then I felt the burning in my throat and nostrils forcing me to cough. That's when I opened my eyes and saw my dad hovering over me. I can't really explain it now, but I just started crying, and my dad hugged me tightly. They later explained that a lifeguard had jumped in and pulled me out, but I was already unconscious by then. They had to do CPR, and I coughed up a lot of water. The lifeguard saw the diving man do this, and they yelled at him to kick him out, but then noticed that I hadn't come back up yet, so they went in to rescue me. Not only did that guy jump on me, purposely or not, but he was also the only one that could have shoved me away when I was struggling. He shoved me underwater and refused to help me. I don't know what his intentions were, but I tried to tell myself that it was nothing more than just wanting to splash us. I want to believe that he wasn't actively trying to hurt me or drown me, but at that moment, it was definitely hard to convince me. To this day, I cannot bear to immerse myself in water that rises above my waist. The memory of that day swimming is burned into the deepest recesses of my mind, and I kind of resent him for that. I was only slightly nervous about it, but with time, I got past it. Now, I cannot shake it. Especially being an adult now, I cannot bear the thought of another lifeguard having to rescue me. As a full adult, even though I know they are trained to do that sort of thing. All I know is I hope that that moment scared some sense into that guy, and that he never did it to another person again. From the ages of 17 to 24, I was a lifeguard at a local community pool, and it was still one of my favorite jobs. I started it as just a way to make easy money. I just sat on a chair, yelled out at people doing things they shouldn't be doing, and got to swim for free. We rarely had a situation of actually needing to save someone, but when we did, I'd be lying if I said it didn't feel good. The adrenaline of being the person to jump in and help someone in need. It wasn't a psychotic or narcissistic thing either. I just realized that I truly loved helping people. That's what made me keep the job for so long, and was also what pushed me to become an EMT. But the story was before my days as an EMT. This happened when I was a lifeguard at the age of 19. I wasn't sure what I wanted to major in yet, but I knew I wanted to do something in the medical field, so after I graduated high school, I started taking my core classes at a local college until I figured it out. My parents were always supportive and let me stay at home until I got my own place. I just chipped in where I could to help with groceries or anything else. So when I wasn't in class, I was working. I even covered other people's shifts at times. The day of this event was no different. I came in around 10 that day, put on my sunscreen, grabbed my sunglasses, and found myself sitting on one of the tall guard chairs. As I scanned the area to make notes of the different people I was seeing, I saw two new people enter. 
It appeared to be a father and his young daughter. I could see the entrance from where I was, so I saw him scan a card. They walked in and then went off to the side a bit. He knelt down to be at eye level with the girl, and he put one hand on her shoulder and used the other hand to wave it over to the pool, pointing to a specific part. I obviously couldn't hear them, but if I had to guess, it looked as if he was telling her where she was allowed to go in the pool. We had the main pool, a small kiddie pool, two water slides, and also a small hot tub, typically used for therapy purposes. I assumed he was just directing her where to stay. Afterwards, he hugged her and then she walked over to the shallow end. The dad, however, walked over to the diving boards and jumped in. I watched him jump in and then swam to the other side of the pool, seemingly just waiting there. I thought it was a little odd that it was just the two of them and he wasn't going to keep an eye on her, but assumed that... Maybe she was just a very responsible kid, and let it go. But then the weird feelings began. The dad looked up at me, nodding and smiling, and instantly this feeling washed over me, telling me to keep an eye on him. I watched over him as he seemed to people watch from the corner of the pool. Since he wasn't going anywhere, I looked over at the girl that he came in with. She was sitting at the entrance of the pool, playing with one of those little water footballs. I noticed that she would look over at one of the nearby kids playing, almost craving their attention. You could tell by the look on her face that she wanted to play with her, but maybe she was just painfully shy, causing her not to be able to initiate a conversation. Other than being alone, she didn't seem suspicious in the slightest, so I focused my attention back on the dad. That's when I noticed that he seemed to be focusing his attention on two other young girls. I would say the girls were probably around 12 to 14 years old. They reminded me of my younger sister. They were sitting on the edge of the pool and just talking, when another lifeguard told them that they couldn't do that, so they got in the pool. Unfortunately, I saw him approach the girls, smiling and greeting them. The girls reciprocated, but I still wanted to keep an eye on him. I would do my normal scan of the pool and surrounding area, but then soon after, my eyes would make their way to that guy again. I noticed the girls now had a different look on their faces. It was more so a look of boredom. Like when someone is telling you something you obviously have no interest in, or maybe just don't understand. Either way... They didn't look like they cared to be talked to by him, or to be in that situation. So, I did the best that I could, and when one of my coworkers walked by, I told him about the guy. He actually agreed with me, saying that he noticed him staring too. He said that he was going to go tell the manager on duty so we could force a clear out of the pool, or maybe even do an adult swim, so that we could get him away from the girls and ask them what was going on. If anyone was being inappropriate or not following the rules, they were told to leave. There was also a three-strike system, and if you were kicked out three times, you were banned, and never allowed back to the pool. There are, however, some situations, of course, that could get you banned before the three strikes. So, 
while I waited for my coworker to come back with good news, I continued to watch them. The girl's body language was telling me that they were not comfortable with what was happening. I didn't know what he was doing or saying to them, nor did I know what he might try, but I did know that I needed to do something. So I blew my whistle, which made the other guards look over. I yelled at them, saying they needed to move as they were too close to the diving part, and the girls immediately walked towards the shallow water. The dad stayed where he was and just had an annoyed look on his face, and then he flipped the bird at me. I shrugged and watched as he walked past the girls and then over to his daughter. He again knelt and was talking to her when he pointed at the same girl that she'd been eyeing to and then stood up and disappeared in the restroom. Shortly after, my coworker approached me and said the manager was working on it, but was also relieving me so that I could go to break. I jumped down from the chair and knew immediately what I needed to do. I wanted to see if that girl would talk to me, so I could find out what exactly was happening. I walked around and got in the pool entrance, greeting the young girl. She said hi back, but she still seemed a bit standoffish. I tried to make simple and friendly talk, but I also didn't know how long I had until he came back. So, I tried to make a comment about her dad, when she quickly cut me off and said, He's not my dad. I asked her who he was, and she quietly said, I don't know, he just brought me here. My stomach dropped, and this without a doubt confirmed that something was wrong here. I think that she knew too and was probably terrified, leading her to tell me, hoping to get help. For her age, she seemed like a very smart girl. I suggested that she come with me so that we could call her parents. She looked at me for a few moments and realized that I too could have been scary or suspicious. I told her that I could go get a girl if that would make her feel better, and she told me it was okay because you're a lifeguard and you save people's lives. That is what I lived for right there. She took my hand and we quickly walked to the post up front. The door is one of those breakaway doors where you can have the bottom half closed and the top half open. The bottom was closed when we approached, but I quickly closed both when we walked in as I didn't want the fake dad to see her. My manager was already back there, and I quietly explained to her what happened, so as to not alarm the girl. We got her a snack, and she seemed content sitting on the chair in the back, watching everyone else walk around. We even asked her if she knew her phone number, and she could remember part of it, and she could tell us her parents' names. Unfortunately, she had never been to this pool before, so my idea of looking for her parents in the membership log was shot down. However, we at least knew that we would have this guy's information, so my manager started checking the logs to see who all scanned their passes, while another coworker called the cops. While all this was occurring around me, another coworker approached me and said that the guy was looking around frantically at the pool, most likely trying to find the young girl now under our protection. I was worried that he might bail, thinking that we were onto him, and I wanted so badly for someone to distract him. My manager, however, found his information, 
and told us not to engage in case he tried anything, so we obliged. I went back out to my post as normal, and I watched as this guy paced a bit. He watched the kids going down the slide, and he scanned the whole area, obviously trying to find someone. But shortly after this, I saw him head towards the exit, and then he was gone. He beat the police. But he didn't get far. With the information we were able to give the police, they knew exactly who this girl was, and her parents showed up shortly after the cops did. The girl had actually been reported missing a few hours earlier, as she was at a summer program, and that guy showed up to pick her up. The girl apparently went with him anyways, after he told her that her mom was hurt, and he was going to take her to see her. The guy had been stalking her mom, and thought that he could use her as a leverage to get the mom to come see him. The problem with this plan, though, was that there was no plan after getting the girl. So, he thought he would just take her to the pool that he'd paid for and signed up for with his own name. They were able to track the guy down, and he was arrested that night. I know this because they came back to confirm that they had the same guy that was at the pool. A lot of this was information that I heard that night and on the news. We actually had a local news crew show up filming and asking us tons of questions, so of course I tuned in. That was an entirely different save that I never expected to have, but it's still something that stays in my memory. Nevertheless, there are still things that have gone unanswered. I had asked the other girls that he was talking to, what he'd said to them, and he had complimented them on their bodies and asked if they wanted to go back to his place to party. He then proceeded to brag about his massive house and his accomplishments. They became uncomfortable because, of course, a grown man was asking these preteens to come party with him. They had walked to the pool, so they stayed close by until a parent picked them up that night too. If his whole intention was to get to the girl's mom, why would he do that with the other girls? And why did he choose the pool? Not that it makes it better, but I hope that part is true and that he had no other sinister plans with the daughter, or the other girls, but it's kind of hard to believe that. Either way, the guy was locked up and everyone went home safe, but I'm sure still fairly traumatized. And... That day was a stark reminder to myself to question even the smallest things that seemed off. This happened back in 1986, when I was working for a bank in the bookkeeping department in Richmond, Virginia. Where I worked in bookkeeping was called statement rendering. We kept all the personal and corporate checks filed there. On the first and second of each month, we had to mail out, by hand, all of the corporate statements. Everyone in the department, no matter your regular job, had to help that day, and we sometimes didn't get out until 8 or 9 that night. Usually, we got an hour for lunch, but on those days, we got 30 minutes. I can't remember the exact day the story takes place, but it was in 1986, 
right after we bombed Libya. So, I'm thinking April or May. My friend, M, and I were discussing what to do for lunch because, as I stated before, we only had 30 minutes that day. We decided on going to Popeye's because it wasn't too far away, and I thought we could make it in 30 minutes. So, that's what we did. My friend was driving because I didn't have a car at the time, and I took the bus everywhere. The bus system in Richmond was really good. We got to Popeye's and got in line to order. As we were standing there, a guy came in and got right behind us in line. He was staring a hole through me. I turned back and stared straight ahead. Em and I kind of looked at each other with a, what's wrong with this guy look. We got our food and went to sit down. Em sat down across from me and whispered that when I was going to sit down, that guy's eyes followed me the whole time I was walking back to the table. That's when I started to get worried. He came and sat down at the table behind ours, and I was facing him. The whole time, he just sat there and stared at me. I would try to sit so M's head was blocking his view of me, but he would just move over and continue to stare. We had to sit there and wait until he finally got up and left. After he got up and left, we laughed about it, but the laughter didn't last long. He didn't leave. He was waiting for us in the parking lot in his car. As I stated before, this was right after we had bombed Libya, and he looked Middle Eastern, and I started thinking we were going to be kidnapped. We decided to walk back to where the arcade games were just to see if we were being paranoid, and we weren't. He drove over to where he knew we were. Now we started panicking. Our time for lunch was running out, and we didn't want this guy following us back to work. So we went to the payphone there, this was before cell phones, and we called our office to let them know what was going on. Our boss was at lunch, so we had to leave a message, and after that we stood there trying to decide what to do to lose this guy. The parking lot just had one row of spaces, and there was an entrance out to the main street, and another one in the back going out to a parking lot where there was a back way to work. By this time, he had pulled his car out and was facing the front entrance to the main road. I told my friend to back up and go out the other way, through that parking lot, and we can go the back way to work. That's what we did. We saw him zoom out the front way and try to find out which way we went, but he never did. We got back to work late and told them what happened. They all burst out laughing. They said it sounded like something out of Miami Vice, and then I burst out crying. My friend yelled at them that there was nothing funny about this. But that's my creepy encounter story. Thank you for listening. Before I start telling the story about my ex, I want to add a bit of content warning here at the beginning. Some of the things that my ex did were absolutely disgusting. Vile is a better word. And she was an absolute psycho that had zero regards for anything other than what she wanted. Something that I honestly did not see at the beginning, 
but became quite obvious after we broke up. The content warning is for the fact that, during all this, one of the disgusting things that she did involved hurting an innocent animal. I know that a lot of people are sensitive to hearing about hurting animals, so I ask that you include this in the story if you narrate it, so that people can choose whether or not they listen to this story specifically. That out of the way, let's get to the context and then the whole thing that happened. About five years ago, I ended the relationship that I had with a girl that I thought I was going to spend my whole life with, Tracy. When I met Tracy, she had convinced me that she was a beautiful soul, that she was a kind-hearted, loving, altruistic person, and I instantly fell in love with her. We got together, and we spent a solid two and a half years together. It was a pretty major roller coaster, a lot of ups and downs, and after one particularly nasty argument, I basically told Tracy that I could not do it anymore. I ended up telling her that I couldn't deal with what our relationship was becoming, and I told her that we needed to take some time apart and just think on things for a while. She was, of course, begging me not to do it, but I told her that I had made up my mind. It was a messy breakup, full of anger and a lot of hurt feelings, but I was certain that it was for the best. We'd been broken up for about three months by the time this story takes place, and I thought that things were finally starting to take a turn. I was starting to really move on, she'd stopped texting me, we'd pretty much just stopped talking altogether, and it seemed like that chapter of our lives was over. I wasn't ready to date anyone new, but I was enjoying the time to myself, just hanging out with friends, working a lot, and being myself. Tracy, on the other hand, was apparently not there yet. One night, I was jolted awake by what I thought was the sound of a door opening in my apartment. I jumped up, but as I slowly hit the point of actually being conscious, I wasn't sure if I'd actually heard the door, or if it was just a sound that played in my dream and I was freaking out over nothing. I turned and sat on the edge of my bed, just listening to see if I could hear any indication of there being someone in my apartment. But after a couple of moments, I was pretty certain that I was freaking out over nothing. I decided to go ahead and get up and go to the restroom since I was already awake. I opened my door, and as soon as I got to the hallway, I smelled something that was, to put it bluntly, sickening. As in literally sickening. It was a smell that made my stomach turn and I felt like I was going to puke. It clicked after I pulled my shirt up to cover my mouth what it was that I was smelling. It was decay. Like there was something dead in my apartment. My mind thought that maybe it was a mouse or something, but when I turned on my hallway light, I looked over into my living room and realized just how wrong I was. There, sitting on my chair, was the carcass of a dead rabbit. I won't get into the details, but it was disgusting. The rabbit was definitely dead, 
and it was definitely placed there by someone intentionally. I recoiled the second that I saw it, nearly tripping over my own feet. I ran to the front door and threw it open, hoping to see the person that had done this still in the hallway, though I knew that they would be gone. This obviously freaked me out pretty bad. Someone had been in my apartment. They had placed a dead animal in my chair, and they were able to do this all while I was asleep in my bed. I immediately called the police, and when the officer got there, I struggled to explain to the officer exactly what had happened. I told them that I heard the click, that I'd come out and turned on the light and saw the rabbit, and that there was nobody in the hall when I checked. They were pretty clearly baffled. They asked me if I had any enemies, and I told them no. They took the information, took the evidence, and told me that they would do their best to figure it out. Now, at the time, none of it clicked. A dead rabbit had zero connection to Tracy for me. I just didn't put the pieces together. That is, until about noon the next day. I was at work, and I got a text message from an unknown number that said, I hope you liked your gift. Sincerely, your bunny. This is where it all clicked for me. One of the pet names that Tracy always tried to push me to call her was Bunny. I hated it. She told me that her dad used to call her his little bunny when she was a child, which, sure, that's cute, but asking your boyfriend to carry on calling you the same nickname your now-deceased dad called you as a young girl? Yeah, that's creepy as hell. I obviously reported this to the police as well, but the number was an anonymous online number, and she denied the whole thing. So, obviously nothing happened with that, as they couldn't do anything without evidence. For the next few days, I found myself living in constant paranoia. Every time I would hear a creaking floorboard, I would jump, thinking that she was somehow breaking into my apartment again. I was triple-checking the doors and windows, watching out the blinds to see if she showed up, thinking she was going to do something else. It may sound dumb, she'd only done the one thing, but it was more about the fact that she'd somehow violated the safety of my home, and I didn't know how. Then, that paranoia actually paid off. I was lying in bed watching the ceiling fan spin, when I heard what I thought was the sound of my door clicking shut. It was one in the morning. I lived alone. There was no reason for anybody to be coming into my apartment, unless it was Tracy doing something else. I slowly got up, crept to my bedroom door, and looked into the dimly lit hallway. Sure enough, there was somebody in my apartment, and I could tell pretty quickly that it was Tracy. They had long hair, the same figure as she did, and they were the same height. I'm gonna be honest, I don't remember all of what happened beyond me running out of my room and taking her to the ground, and then grabbing my phone to call 911. The entire time, she was screaming that I was trying to kill her, and probably to get the 911 operator to think that I was the problem in this situation. I kept her on the ground until the cops showed up, 
and I told them that I couldn't get up because I was holding her down. And I was actually thankful that it was the same officer as the previous time. He entered the apartment with his weapon drawn, and she started screaming that I had broken into the apartment, that this was her place, and that I was trying to assault and kill her. That did not work in her favor, because this officer knew me from only a couple of weeks back. He then took over the situation, all the while she was screaming that he was arresting the wrong person, that she was the victim here. After a lot of screaming and her getting shoved into the back of the cop car, the situation thankfully died down. The whole time she was being apprehended, she was going off non-stop telling them that I was a murderer, that I had a criminal record, which, what? And then she started threatening them, saying that she would be out in no time, and that she would find them. It was just absolutely insane. She then said that the day that she was out, she was going to come back and finish the job. And based on what she had in her bag, she absolutely had a job that she was planning. In the scuffle, I didn't even notice that she had a backpack on her, but when the officer started going through it, I started feeling even worse about the whole thing. The main thing that I think was problematic was the huge chef's knife that she had wrapped up in the bag along with some bleach and a few other things. So, yeah, that's the story of my crazy ex, Tracy. The ex that left a dead animal in my apartment, as a threat, I guess, and then came back to seemingly kill me. She went away for a long time. I don't remember the exact number, but it was definitely a life-changing sentence. I ended up moving out of the state, and I'll be honest, it was mostly because I don't want her to find me. I'm still paranoid about my doors and window locks, and I now live in a third-story apartment, so I know that the only way in is the front door. A door that I keep locked, deadbolted, and locked with the wall chain at all times. My husband and I took a weekend trip to this little water resort several years ago. This place was fantastic. The hotel looked luxurious, but I promise you, it did not cost a fortune. They had a huge indoor and outdoor pool, water slides, a lazy river, and even a water park style place. There were a lot more kids in the water park, but it was still fun to watch. They also had some kind of retro theater that played old movies and an arcade. There was definitely plenty there for everyone, and we had a marvelous time. Well, for the most part. On our second day there, we decided to go swimming in their larger outdoor pool. It was restricted to adults as it went pretty deep and also had a diving side. We were just wading in the pool, talking and enjoying each other's company, while the sun beamed down on us. Little did I know that beneath the shimmering surface, something was ready to shatter our tranquil day at the pool. As we floated along, I thought I felt something brush my leg. 
assuming I was just feeling the water or maybe I hit a spot that was cooler and it threw me off, I ignored it. But when it happened again, I teased my husband Ed about touching me in the water. His face told me pretty quickly that he didn't do anything. The thing is, though, we were in a pool, and I could look down and see the water, and there was nothing near me. But Ed is actually pretty bad at lying, especially when he's trying to play around and prank me, so I believed him. Being a little weirded out, I suggested that we moved a little further into the water. Everything went back to normal after we moved, but only for about another ten minutes or so. Again, I felt something, but this time it felt like something touched or grabbed my ankle. I could feel the pressure around my ankle like someone had a hold of it, which caused me to kick my foot as forcefully as I could. I told Ed what I had just felt, and we were both staring intently into the water. As expected, there was absolutely nothing around. I was about to suggest that we just get out for a bit, maybe check my leg and make sure nothing was wrong with it, but before I could finish speaking, the feeling came back tenfold. I felt something around my ankle that forcefully pulled me straight down. It literally pulled me under the water. I came back up, but it wasn't for long. I looked at my husband, terrified, and soon I was pulled right back under. I opened my eyes in the chlorinated water, but even through the blurriness, I could only see one set of legs near me, which were Ed's. There's no way that he could have done that. When I came up the second time, I didn't hesitate. I wrapped my arms around Ed and told him to get me the hell out of there. We went to the side of the pool, and I gripped onto the side as I slowly swam to the shallow end when I felt the tug one more time. This time it wasn't as hard, as my head didn't go under, but it was still just as terrifying. It caused me to scream, and my breathing was clearly faster than normal. By the time we got to the steps, I rushed out of the water, spinning around, looking at my surroundings and back into the water. There was nothing around the spot where we were. I just stood there, shivering from fear and trying to grasp what the hell just happened to me. Ed looked just as confused and worried. We found a table to sit at nearby, and after calming down some more, I explained to my husband what I had just experienced. He said that it even looked like something out of a movie. I went straight underwater, and it was so quick that it made no sense. We could not come up with any reason for this to happen, and after that whole show, I was not in the mood to swim again, so we just went back to our room for the night. The next day, we didn't want to spoil our trip, so we did go back to the pools, but this time, we just did the lazy river. I was sitting in a tube so my feet were not in the water, and thankfully nothing happened. However, I did get this weird feeling about halfway through the river. I got this sense that I was being watched, and like whoever was watching me was not happy. Like I could feel the anger surrounding me. It was almost unbearable. I just took deep breaths and closed my eyes trying to enjoy the remainder of the ride until we got to the end. By the time we got off, everything was back to normal again. 
I explained to Ed what happened, and we just avoided the water for the rest of our stay. I didn't need to have something drowning me or people looking at me like I was crazy. To this day, I still have no idea what that was. The resort that we stayed at was practically new. It had only been open a few years prior to our visit, and it was a brand new building. My first thought was that it could be haunted, but how could that be possible? Ed and I swear to this day that we saw nothing in the water near us when I was being pulled under, and the feeling on the river made no sense. At least, neither of us saw someone angrily staring at me, but I sure as hell felt it. If anyone has any ideas, I'm open to hear them. But until then, I think that I'm just going to avoid visiting that place again. I frequently go to my grandparents' house. I want to make one thing clear, though. The house is very clearly haunted. But let me give some background. The house was built in the 1960s. It was built over a cemetery for African Americans before they were given rights and slavery had ended. But it had obviously been a long time since people stopped putting corpses there. It is also by some very deep woods. All the houses are surrounded by the woods, as I live in the southern part of the country. I've seen some ghosts and spirits before, but it was when I was very little. I've also had paranormal experiences, and some of those were recent. I often hear knocking in places of the house that no one can get to due to the furniture. My great-grandmother, 76 and can barely walk also lives with my grandparents, and she's diabetic, and she's very unable to move due to her weight. Her room is where I often hear the knocking coming from, but she's handicapped and is not able to get up without a walker, or even really knock on the wall. Why would anybody knock on a wall just to scare me? Apparently, I'm the only one that ever hears it or notices it. We also have an attic. Some things go missing, and oftentimes my cats just stare at nothing. But I've heard that animals can see ghosts. I get paranoid sometimes, but only to an extent. A light once fell from the ceiling. Very recent, actually, as it was only a few months ago. The light was new and recently installed, but it was definitely installed properly. So, why would it randomly fall out of nowhere? As mentioned, we do have an attic, but I can't even remember the last time someone went up in it. The light itself didn't fall, but the covering for it fell off, which was very weird. Nobody messed with it, and like I said, it was properly installed. The most recent experience that I've had with a ghost was over a year ago, July 4th of 2021 to be exact. Usually a lot of my family comes over, and two specific cousins usually ask to stay the night, and only one is allowed to any time, and I always choose the older one to stay the night with because she's more fun. She recently got a new boyfriend, so she was mostly on FaceTime with him, and I honestly wanted the night to end because of her ignoring me and being rude to 
I guess, impress her boyfriend. She wanted to go outside, and I was fine with it, because we were finally doing something after hours. She decided that it would be funny to mess with me, and say that she saw something by the woods in our neighbor's yard. So we would keep running up and then run back, trying to get a closer look each time. Eventually, we got close enough to get a clear look, and I actually saw something. It was a white, skinny figure. It looked naked, or had very little raggedy clothing, and it looked like it had white hair with lots of chunks ripped out. I couldn't see a face, though, because I'm practically blind and can't really see that far away. I took a good ten minutes to look at it, and when I finally said something about seeing it to my cousin, it started running towards us. I guess my cousin didn't see it because she didn't do anything until I screamed and started running back to the back entrance of the house. I was wearing Birkenstocks, and I slipped because of the slightly wet grass. I didn't look back once, and I just grabbed my shoes because it flew off and I took the other one off and then continued running. When I got back into the house, I locked the door and sat against it. So did my cousin. I told her everything and also got mad at her because she looked back at me and laughed when I fell. We continued sitting against the door and then we heard knocking on said door. We got scared and ran back to my room and I almost started crying. As an update, it's been almost a year since I've posted this and I've made some edits. I'm now 13, and I've only had about one other scare since then. I had a different cousin over, and we were sleeping in the living room together. She went to the kitchen, which is the hot spot for my experiences, to grab a drink, and then turned the light off after that. We then noticed that the light was turned back on. It was late at night, and nobody else was really awake. Why is the kitchen light on? I thought you turned it off when you came back. I asked her. Oh, I could have sworn that I turned it off. I guess I imagined it, she replied. She went back to the kitchen and turned the light off. Jordan, I said, and she replied, what? The kitchen light is still on. Have you not been turning it off? What? I turned it off. I know that I did, she answered. Well, it's on and no one's awake, so who else would have turned it on? Are you too scared to turn it off? I asked. No, I'm not scared. I've been turning it off, she replied. Look, if you're embarrassed to admit it because you're older than me, that's totally fine, I said. She replied with, Braley, I'm not lying. I'll turn it off again. You can even come with me to make sure. I said, okay, I'll go with you. I went to the kitchen with her and we turned the light off. This process repeated again, and we of course got a bit freaked out. Jordan, nobody's awake, right? I asked my cousin. No, just us, why? She replied. Because the light's on again, I said. What? There's no way. She looked into the hallway and saw the light on. I entered the kitchen myself and turned it off, and then the back entrance slightly opened. I thought maybe someone didn't close it all the way, so I closed it. And then the light turned on again when I was in the kitchen. Jordan, why did you turn the light on? No reply. Jordan? Still no answer. I went into the living room, turning the light off behind me, 
and said, Jordan, stop messing with me. She was asleep. I got paranoid, and I put two fingers directly under her nose to make sure she was breathing. She was, so I was relieved and then went to the restroom. I remembered how the light turned on again as I was shutting the door and got a little frightened. I went ahead and finished my business, walked out into the hallway, and the light was on again. I walked into the kitchen and the door was open again. I closed it, locked it, and I checked the house in case I was locking someone in who shouldn't have been in there. No one. No one was there besides my asleep family. I kept the kitchen light on because I was too scared to turn it off at that point. My mother and I recently moved into a new house with my brother. I'm mostly alone because they both work, and I'm always paranoid and scared at nighttime now. To start, the person who submitted this story did include a trigger warning tag, and as such, I will go ahead and include it, especially considering what it is, uh, they put trigger warning animal sacrifice. So, if that's not something you want to hear about, I recommend going to the next story. All timestamps are down below. Apologies for the story being so long. My dad and I flip houses for a living. We do everything. So, house renovations can take anywhere from a couple of months to a year and up. Here is what happened to us in a 100-plus-year-old farmhouse in northwest New Jersey, USA, about three years ago. This old farmhouse was beautiful, but extremely run down. It had sat vacant prior to our purchasing it for 15 years. Also, there was evidence that squatters had been there at one point, the house had good bones, as they say, so it wasn't worth it to tear it down and start from scratch. The first part of our job is the cleanup and demo. I've noticed that every house has its own vibe and energy. However, the old farmhouse was different. It was four floors, including basement and attic. Anytime you were downstairs on the main floor, kitchen, living room, and office, it felt fine. Normal, even. When you went upstairs, it was different. There was a, a heaviness up there. I would announce every time I came in the house, Hey, it's just me. Is it cool if I come up and do such and such? I also would announce myself any time I came in the house downstairs with a, Hey, how are y'all doing today? My dad would look at me like I was crazy, because I never did this anywhere else. Ever. I don't know why I did it here. I just felt the need to. Like a deep itch in my brain pleading me to say it, so I did. Each and every time. Within the first few days of the clean-out and demo, my dad found something disturbing. In the master bedroom upstairs, there was a small closet with a light in it. Hanging on the inside of the closet door, on a coat hook, it was a bloody dog collar. There were weird symbols spray-painted only in this closet. Something looked like it had been burned in a pile on the floor of the closet. 
I refused to touch it, and got extremely upset at the sight of the dog collar. Furious, even. Who the hell would do something to a poor animal like this? I was so bothered that my dad told me to go home for the day, and I did. It still makes me sick thinking about the sick people who did whatever to have something like that there. My dad and the other co-workers cleaned it out. Also, the light in that closet, we never got it to work. We do minor electrical repair and couldn't figure it out. We had a master electrician come, and he couldn't get it to work either. New light fixtures, new wiring, new everything. And nothing worked. When we had finished cleaning out the living room quarters, we decided to work on the attic and basement. Basement was okay. Honestly, the bottom half of the house, basement and second floor kitchen, office, living room, felt fine. Neutral, even. The attic was terrible. I could not bring myself to go up there, not once. To not be an a-hole, I worked on the other floors of the house. My dad understood without me even having to explain, which speaks volumes, because he is a real skeptic. One day, I had to hold the flashlight for my dad while he was in the attic. I stood on the stairs with only my head and upper torso sticking into the attic space. The lights never would work up there either. The attic had one of those pull-down-from-the-ceiling foldable ladders. It was located in the hallway between the master bedroom, second bedroom, and only bathroom. The second we opened it, a rank smell hit us hard in the face. Death, for sure. Something must have died up there, we thought. There were those large black flies that seemed to swarm to rot and death everywhere. To say it was an infestation of flies, that's an understatement. I stood on the ladder almost falling multiple times from ferociously swatting these demon bugs away. My dad looked everywhere for the cause of the flies for days and couldn't find anything. Before we sold the house, we finally got the flies to go away. This was after months of trying, by the way. However, when the new owner chose to rent the house out, the flies kept coming back. To this day, almost three years later, exterminators and pest control have been called and the flies still come back. The master bedroom had something else happen after the closet was cleaned up. I talked my dad into burying the dog collar, by the way. There were four windows in the master bedroom. Two windows on the north wall and two on the west. The north wall windows one day suddenly had two bats on them. They were somehow wedged between the glass and the screen of the old window. We needed to replace all the old windows, so we tried everything to free the bats without hurting them. We worked during the day, so bats being nocturnal, and we figured it explained why they never moved during the day. When we would come the next day, they seemed to have moved overnight, so we knew that they were alive. These poor bats had me seriously fretting. Any dead bugs I found during the cleanup, I would put into this windowsill hoping that they would eat. I know that that's weird, but I don't care. I'm a die-hard animal lover. It appeared that they were stuck, and it was killing me to see them like that. 
it made no logical sense as to how they got in there either. Also, it was early summer, so they weren't hibernating either. My dad and I decided to get a ladder and try from the outside of the house. He finally got it so that the bats could undoubtedly get out. The bats never moved from that window screen for weeks. Then, one day, they were gone. I thought for a long time that my dad had discovered they were dead and disposed of them so as to not upset me, but he promises me he did not do this, and that after weeks of them moving barely inches, they had indeed left of their own volition. We finished the house and did sell it. The new owner rented it out to tenants. Tenants would move in, stay for a month or two, and then break their leases to move out. This has happened four times since we finished it. After each move out, we were contracted to come in and do a fresh coat of paint, deep clean, patch up a hole, or any other fix needed. The feelings in that house, they never changed. Also, I wanted to add that we told the new owner about all the weirdness prior to them purchasing. My dad is a skeptical guy, and has no explanation for any of this stuff. My dad also now announces himself any time we go into that house. We've met every tenant that lived there at some point in their rental time, and they all seemed like normal people, and not the type to just break their leases for no reason. I feel like the house needs a cleansing or something, I don't know. But to whoever did that poor dog and the house dirty, may you reap what you sow. So, this story is from a chapter in my life that I honestly kind of wish I could erase. But since I can't, why not share it with the world? This was back in a quieter period of my life, where I was still kind of finding myself. But I was starting to put the pieces together. I had a pretty decent job, I'd finished my degree, I was making a decent amount of money, and all was well. At this point, I was even in a relationship with a young woman that we're going to call Rachel. Now, to set the record straight, she and I were not in a serious, life-consuming kind of relationship. It was casual, comfortable, and enjoyable, but completely casual. We'd been together for about three months, and we were exclusive with each other, but we'd both agreed that there was likely nothing in the future for us. We had different plans, specifically when it came to kids and our careers, and we were just enjoying the time together until something inevitably split us up. Basically, good while it lasted, but not irreplaceable. And, of course, that something that split us up would come from my side of things. One day, my boss called me into his office. I honestly thought I was about to get fired, but it was actually the exact opposite. He offered me a huge promotion, and asked me to oversee the team at our newest office. The only thing was, this office was in Salt Lake City, which is a bit far from my home in Virginia. He basically told me that this was a once-in-a-lifetime job offer, 
and that this was a massive career move, and that I should seriously consider it. And, if I took it, I would be living in SLC in about 60 days. When I told Rachel, we both talked about it and understood what this meant for us. It was agreed that I would take the job and that we would go ahead and just end our relationship then and there. There was some regret, a bit of crying, but at the same time we knew that this was for the best. We gradually stopped talking to each other over the next month, and while it was sad, it wasn't really devastating to either of us. Fast forward to around day 45 of 60, and things took a bit of an unexpected turn at work. My manager informed me that there was a bit of an administrative issue, and my new position in Salt Lake City would be delayed a bit more. There was no specific timeline, just that I would have to wait longer, and they 100% promised that I still had the position. I was okay with it. It gave me a bit more time to prep for the move. They were offering to compensate me for the extra rent that I was paying, having to go month to month with my leasing company, and honestly it made me feel way more relaxed about everything. Then, the day finally arrived. The day that I was supposed to leave for Utah. I was home, sorting through my stuff and boxing up a few things, not hurrying in any definition of the word. When I get a phone call. Much to my surprise, it was a phone call from Rachel. I kind of smirked, thinking that she was calling to wish me happy travels or something like that, which was super sweet of her. But then I answered, and, well, it wasn't that. She started the call off with a frantic, Hey, Jackson. Her voice had a tone of, I guess, worry or concern, like she was a bit scared or nervous. I said hello and asked how she was doing, and she cut me off with, Hey, I'm at SLC International. I need you to come and get me. My mind took a moment to register what she had just said. I asked her why she was in Salt Lake City. She responded with, I decided that I'm moving in with you. I brought all my stuff and my cat. I need you to come get me ASAP. Now, remember, I hadn't spoken to Rachel in a few weeks by this point. She had no idea about the delay or that I was still sitting pretty in my little apartment in Virginia. I broke the news to her, telling her that I wasn't in Utah, that I was still at my apartment because my work had delayed the move. I expected her to be upset or whatever, but she responded in a way that I never would have expected. She lost it, screaming at me over the phone, accusing me of lying, of deceiving her, and blaming me for her being stranded in an unknown city. She was hysterical, crying one minute, yelling so loud that the phone clipped out the next. I tried to calm her down, telling her that I was sorry and asking why she didn't call me before she packed up and flew out, and she responded by screaming, It was supposed to be a surprise. Which, yeah, I was surprised. But who packs up and flies to a city halfway across the country with plans to move in with someone without even 
telling them. After a bit more yelling and sobbing, she slowed down on her emotional roller coaster and the call went silent. She cleared her throat, and when she spoke again, her voice was chillingly calm. She simply said, The minute you land at this airport, I'm going to kill you. And hung up. I just sat there on my bed with my eyes wide and thinking, Wow, that was not the Rachel that I knew. I tried to call her back to see if we could figure something out, but she'd either turned off her phone or blocked my number. She didn't call me back. She never texted me back. I even tried calling her mom to see if she knew what was going on, and she had no idea where Rachel was, or that she had even flown to Utah. A few more months went by, and in a bit of a twist, my work decided to not move me out to Utah. My boss here in Virginia was actually chosen to lead the team out there, and I was given his position here locally. So I ended up never having to actually move at all. Since that day, I have not heard from Rachel. At all. I haven't seen her here in town, I haven't gotten a text or call from her, and her Facebook has not been updated. I literally have no idea what happened to her. I sometimes do wonder about it, how she managed in a city that she'd never been to, and I hope that she's doing okay. But it was such a bizarre event that I can't help but feel a bit freaked out. Sure, I do feel a bit guilty because it all could have been avoided had I told her about the delay, but I didn't see a point since I was still going to be moving out there at the time. It was just going to be a bit later. Plus, she could have called me and told me that she wanted to make the relationship serious, because I probably would have gone with it. Though, now that I've written all this out and kind of thought about how she was acting, maybe it's best things ended up the way that they did. Hi Raven, this is probably the fourth or fifth story that I've submitted to you, but I'm honestly not sure what category this one fits in, but I'm almost certain that you'll find a place for it on your channel though. The story comes from my dad. He told me recently that his best friend was having some issues with his relatively new wife. I'm not going to use his name in order to spare his privacy. They got married only a couple of years ago, sometime during COVID. My dad said that he used to call her Sweet Mary because, well, her name is Mary and she was always so sweet. My dad's friend is an older man, in his late 60s, so it's no surprise that both he and Mary had been through a few divorces already before the two of them met. Everything was fine between them for a while. But within a somewhat short period of time, Mary's demeanor started to become a little strange. They lived a few states away from us, so it's nothing either of us personally witnessed, but... It sounded like the two of them were likely to get a divorce if things continued to get worse. 
we never could have imagined how far the situation would escalate. All of this was several months ago, and that was the last that I'd heard of it. A few days ago, though, I had dinner with my dad and he gave me a very disturbing update. Mary's mental state had apparently deteriorated pretty quickly. She'd been complaining of physical ailments, all sorts of weird things, and she was insisting that there had to be mold in the house. She basically wanted to tear the house apart until they found it. At some point, Mary and my father's friend had dinner with a buddy of theirs, who was a doctor. In conversation, Mary mentioned the health issues that she'd been experiencing recently. Their friend was concerned, and he told them that her symptoms matched those of someone who had been poisoned. He asked if she'd been handling chemicals or had eaten anything strange. She said she hadn't, and once again insisted that there must be mold in the house. The doctor took Mary's hand and pointed out some distinct white lines that had developed across her fingernails, which are apparently a telltale symptom of arsenic poisoning. He recommended that she immediately get her blood tested to make sure that she hadn't been poisoned. She outright refused to undergo any sort of testing, which seemed extremely strange to everyone in the room. My dad, upon hearing this, suggested that his friend get his own blood tested to make sure he didn't have anything in his system, because Mary's reaction to the doctor's suggestion was pretty irrational and, honestly, suspicious. His friend spoke to Mary and told her that if the lab found poison in his blood, he would be contacting the police right away. Guess what the lab found? Arsenic. As much as it seems like something you would only see in a TV show, it was starting to sound an awful lot like Mary had been slowly poisoning her husband and had mistakenly exposed herself to the toxin. But it gets much, much worse. Some even more disturbing evidence surfaced once my father and his friend dug deeper into Mary's past. Her previous two husbands had died pretty young, and, as it turns out, their causes of death were conditions that could both be traced back to, specifically, arsenic poisoning. I'm not sure what exactly law enforcement intends to do with Sweet Mary, or if she really is a black widow, but I can only hope that she rots in prison if her intentions were as sinister as they seemed. I truly hate Walmart. The corporate symbolism, the size, crowding, lighting, etc. As I'm sure many people can relate, and I had sworn not to go there again multiple times in the months leading up to this. But I was fixing up my newly acquired vintage camper in the summer of 2022, and kept having what I needed when I needed it at the price that I wanted was luring me back in with my perpetual brokenness. The last time I went was to get the spray paint that I'd been using, which is only available there or on Amazon, and I wanted it immediately. I decided to park in back by the auto center, 
a tactic I had used previously to try and make the trip as short as possible, since the paint and hardware section is adjacent to the auto center. It was business as usual in the auto center. At least there was nothing that caught my attention on recall. As I pushed the button to open the auto center entrance door and went to grab my spray paint. Of course, I ended up looking at other things for a bit. I have ADHD, which makes a truly detestable shopping experience in there, and eventually ended up near the front. I used the self-checkout and walked my way back to the auto center exit where I parked. I passed through the corridor of the auto center checkout slash waiting area to exit through the door that I had entered from, and it wouldn't open. I had learned that upon entering, there is a button that must be pushed to unlock the door, but I could have sworn having done this before. That, when exiting the door, it would open freely. My brain quickly chalks this up to me misremembering and starts looking around for someone nearby to push the button on the other side, and to let me out into the parking lot. I look towards the car shop area through the glass, and there isn't a single auto worker to be found. There are multiple vehicles cranked up on the lifts, but there is literally no movement in the entire space. Again, my brain chalks this up to Walmart being a general crap show, and I turn around to consider my next option. There are also zero employees at the checkout counter, just two men waiting there, presumably for someone to come ring them up and a woman with her toddler son in a cart sitting in one of the leather armchairs in the makeshift area where customers wait for their car services to finish. I ask her if they're all there waiting for an employee of some kind, and she says yes. Not wanting to walk all the way back to the front and externally circle the massive building to get to my truck that's right there, I pop a squat in the leather chair perpendicular to hers assuming someone will be walking through that door any second. A few moments pass, and for some reason both the woman and I notice one of the cheap corkboard panels in the ceiling start to raise up slowly at one end. Not frantically, like from a gust of wind or something, but very smooth and deliberate, teetering up and down, sometimes pretty high up and sometimes just a bit. We confirm that we're both seeing it, and have the following exchange. Her, there's definitely a worker up there doing that. Me, wouldn't we be hearing footsteps though? Can that kind of ceiling even support weight like that? Her, but it has to be a worker though. Then, the panel directly across from that one starts to do the up and down hovering as well, creating a drawbridge type movement but with both sides of the bridge moving independently and without consistent pattern. There's a super bright, warm, yellow-orange light coming from the space up in the panels. At this point, I start literally yelling up into the ceiling, Hey, who's up there? No reply. The woman and I are both pretty energetically anxious at this point. I yell again, Hey, is someone up there? Both panels then slowly drift back down into their correct placement and stop moving. I then notice about three or so panels down from the ghost panels, a ceiling panel that was organically off its tracks and tilted some, exposing a bit of the space above. I then realize as I'm sharing with the woman out loud as I think it, 
that there is no light at all coming from that space. Meaning the light that we saw would have to be somehow isolated to just that area above those two panels. Which was not possible. I look around to see no employees still, and just jump up and say something like, This place is evil, and book it back into the main department store. I'm super flustered and start trying to find another back exit somewhere, while simultaneously texting my friend that I'm trapped in Walmart, and that there are shadow people in the ceiling here. I finally see some employees and decide to turn around and try the auto center door again, because I just want to be out of this place. I forgot to really look around again because, when I got there, a woman was entering and I sprinted to grab that door for dear life. I seriously feel like the dark energy of corporate capitalism was incubating in that ceiling. Big yikes. But I can truly say that I have never returned. This story is mine. Sort of. But it's more my dad's. So... The entire thing is based on what he's told me. I was there, I was just strapped into my little car seat in the back, and was obviously way too young to remember any of it. He told me about this way later on in life, and honestly it was terrifying. It's probably why my dad has always been so protective of me, and emphasized being alert and aware of your surroundings. Hell, when I turned 17, and I got my license, he always told me to take the main roads and to avoid back roads. From what my dad had told me, it was a pretty normal morning. He needed to go run some errands, so he was taking me to my grandmother's house. I was just sitting in my car seat and watching the back window as I always did, completely unaware of anything. He was driving down a relatively quiet road with trees on both sides. My grandma lived on the edge of a suburb, so there were a few spots that you had to go through that weren't heavily incorporated. He was there, just cruising at speed, when a man jumped out of the woods and ran in front of my dad's car, flailing his arms wildly. Naturally, my dad slammed his brake, barely avoiding to hit this guy. He said that he could see that this guy looked terrified, like he was running from something or someone. But something about it didn't seem right. Something about the situation was off. His instincts were screaming at him that this guy just wasn't some random dude running across the road. The guy didn't say anything to my dad. He just limped over to the side of the car and made the motion of rolling down the window. My dad, curious as to what this guy's explanation was, cracked the window and asked if he was okay. The man didn't respond. The two of them just stared at each other eye to eye for several silent seconds. My dad said that his heart was pounding and like his mind was saying, nah, get the hell out of there. He was prepared to drive off at the first sign of trouble and, sure enough, trouble arrived. As soon as he turned to look back at the road, out of the corner of his eye, he saw two other figures starting to emerge from the undergrowth of the woods on the other side. Without hesitation, my dad stomped on the gas. 
and the car lurched forward, leaving the three strangers standing there in the middle of a dust cloud that he'd kicked up. He said that he could see them in the rear view, and all three of them just stood there watching as he drove away. He didn't stop driving until we reached my grandmother's house, where he said that he called the cops to report the incident. He wasn't sure what they were planning, but he gave them the description of the man and the location, but the details were sparse outside of that. We never did find out what happened in that situation, or what all that was. The police never called us back with any details, and my dad didn't press the issue. He was just happy to have avoided what was undoubtedly heading towards a dangerous situation. Even today, years later, my dad sweats every time he tells this story, which really tells me how much it does scare him. My dad is a good guy. He'll stop and help people on the side of the road, but this was definitely a sobering reminder that some people will take advantage of those willing to stop. It's important to trust your instincts and be hyper-vigilant about your surroundings. Hey there, friends. I hope that you enjoyed this collection of scary stories on this episode of the As the Raven Dreams podcast. If you did, make sure that you follow the podcast on whatever platform that you're utilizing. And if the platform you are on has a rate the podcast option, please consider doing so. Those ratings push the podcast into the algorithm, and we all know how the algorithm controls everything, so yeah. I also do have a Patreon. If you go to patreon.com slash asthereavendreams, you can support the channel further. For as little as a dollar a month, you can get early access to all of my content in audio format. The content's a little different, as it's based on what I upload to my YouTube side, but it's the same stories. Just in different collections of stories than how they're presented here. Speaking of stories, if you have one you would like to submit to me, please go to asthereavendreams.com and click the button in the middle of the screen that says Submit Your Story. These stories are mostly sourced by listeners, so let's keep the podcast alive. If you've got one, I'd love to read it. Anyways, friends, I hope you're all having a beautiful day and a lovely week, and I hope I see you again very soon. But until then, remember you're loved, you're valid, you're important. You're the best you that you can be, never forget it. And until next time, much love and sleep well.